It's another episode of Movies You Should Love with Lauren and Scott. Welcome to the podcast. He's Lauren. And he's Scott. Let's get into it. Hey, and welcome to another episode of Movies You Should Love. I'm Lauren, and... I'm Scott. Yeah. And uh, you can always check us out online at uh, moviesyoushouldlove.com or on Twitter at moviesyoushould. Um, so we are always available. And yeah, we're basically here. Uh, we're going to discuss and analyze movies that you should love. We're going to take on kind of classic and current films and break them down, uh, kind of look at what makes them tick and, and why people love them. Mm-hmm. So that's what we're here for. Uh, moviesyoushouldlove.com. And, um, Scott, what are some movies that uh, you've seen here recently that you want to take apart and show what makes them tick? Um, The first I would like to kind of touch on. um, Smooth segue, yes. Nice. Very well done. (laughs) The first I want to touch on is a movie called The Tempest, uh, which is an adaptation of Shakespeare's uh, final play, The Tempest. Um, Really, really good. I really, really enjoyed it. It was directed by uh, Julie Taymor, who directed Titus and um, uh, that Beatles movie all across the universe mm-hmm. and uh, the Lion King play um, really interesting. So it's it got a really great visual sense to it. Um, the reason I would really like to recommend it to people is because of two things, really one is the fantastic cast it has Helen Mirren in it, it has Russell Brand in it. Um, Alfred Molina and just like, uh, Alan Cummings, like the whole cast is just phenomenal. Um, but something that they do in this movie that I have never seen before is they tamper with the script. Um, usually the rule with adapting Shakespeare is you can take stuff out, but you can never add anything. If you watch a lot of Shakespeare films, you'll notice, um, if you're a fan of the plays, they, they'll remove scenes. They'll remove They're kind characters. of abridged versions. Yeah, of it's like we, we need to make this a two-hour movie, and Shakespeare wrote a three-hour play. In or a five-hour play. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like Hamlet is the easiest one to look at because you can see like, entire just subplots completely removed in most of the adaptations. Um, in The Tempest, they cast Helen Mirren in the Prospero role, which in the original play is like this, he's like this king wizard character who's been exiled to this island. Um, in the movie, she is not playing a man. She is playing a woman. And so they change his name from Prospero to Prospera and then they change the script every time they mention him being a man or a king, they change it to uh, you know, they call her her They call she's a queen um, but then they also add a monologue near the middle, beginning-ish middle-ish part of the film they add this monologue um, that gives her backstory as to why she was exiled and at first I thought that they must have just taken one of Shakespeare's sonnets and put it in put it in there but apparently julie taymore and the writer wrote a new part of the play and they Mm. use shakespearean language and so it's really interesting to me so i think fans of shakespeare um should definitely check it out because um it's just it it was really well done it's amazing visuals like i said and it fits this little monologue at the beginning it fits really well but i'd also be kind of curious how uh shakespeare purists feel about that um, I didn't have a problem with it. I, you know, like I said, I thought it fit. It told it, it fit into the story very well. Um, but again, not something I've ever seen anybody dare to do before. Um, it's called The Tempest. Um, I highly recommend it. Nice. Uh, yeah. Um, another. Well, it's kind of a movie I want to recommend based on a show I just watched. I just watched Homeland, and I think I'm the only person in America right now who was 
not as impressed as everybody else. Um, it just won some Golden Globes, and it's a well put together film, a well put together TV series. Um, I can't say that it's not. It's for me though, it felt like a six episode story stretched out into twelve episodes, and I got a little restless about halfway through. Um, that's just me. Other people are really loving it, and I think everybody did a really great job. I love the cast. Um, but if you're interested in that kind of idea, and again, Homeland is a, I think you talked about it in a previous podcast. Um, basically, it's, you know, you have the CIA investigating the possibility that an American soldier who has returned home has been turned, has been turned. He's a, actually a secret Al Qaeda member. Um, and so there's this investigation, this back and forth. Is he not? Is he? Is he not? What's the plan? You know, what are they going? What's he going to try to do if he is bad? Um, some really interesting stuff. Um, ultimately, like I said, I felt like there was there was a lot of subplots that just didn't quite work for me. That kind of ran out of steam about halfway through. Um, so if you like that kind of idea and you're interested in a movie or something that explores some of those themes, I'd actually rec- recommend a film called Paradise Now. It's a Palestinian film that came out in 2005, and it's about these two brothers who are kind of drafted into being uh, suicide bombers. And so the whole film is about this, will they do this? Won't they do this? Why would you do this? What is you know? What do you have to gain from being a suicide bomber? And these two brothers kind of go through it, and they ultimately make their decisions. And it's a very interesting film that um, you have to read it. You know, it is a Palestinian film, and so... Um, it's not in English, um, but it is fantastic. I, it's a movie that definitely left its mark on me. Um, unlike the movie Contagion, which I was actually a little disappointed in. Um, everybody kind of made it sound like it was going to be a really scary thriller that was going to make me super OCD. Um, and it really kind of wasn't. <laughs> um, I wanted it to be a little bit more. Um, there's a lot of really interesting stuff going on. Steven Soderbergh is a phenomenal director who does a lot of great stuff in this. But I kind of... It suffered from this thing I call too much and not enough. It's like it had too many stories and not enough substance in each of those stories due to the fact that there were so many stories going on. Um, like if they had focused on just one of them, I think this could have been a really interesting film. But ultimately, it, it leaves you with nothing because... Though the point of the movie almost seems to be bad things are going to happen. Um, there's nothing you can really do about it. <laughs> you know, it's like there's no there's no message like, you know, oh, make sure you always wash your hands or make sure, you know, this, you know, look at all the germs around you. It kind of seems to just, you know, these things happen. We have these things in place when that does happen. But, you know, we might lose half the population on Earth. You never know. Um, and it also has one of the worst scripted scenes I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> have you seen it at all? I haven't seen it yet, but it's it sounded just fantastic and better and better the more you talk about it. <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's, again, Kate Winslet, is her story is phenomenal, and she does a great job. Matt Damon is really, really good. Um, he plays the father of this uh, little girl, and their story is great. Um, everybody's story is really great. It's just... I wanted more from each of those stories, or like I said, like a two hour, two hours dedicated to just one of those stories. Mm. Um, Marianne Cotillard, whose name I'm sure I just destroyed, her story is one of the most interesting ones to me, but it ends completely unresolved in one of the worst scripted scenes I've seen in a long time. It's just mm. the way it plays out is, it's just kind of ludicrous and like unbelievable, like. 
her character is one that she is working in China when this outbreak takes place. And then she gets abducted by this village because she is this high-placed person in the CDC. And so they go, well, we are going to basically ransom you for the cure. And then she ends up living in this small village in, the, in this remote part of China and basically kind of falls in love with the village. She becomes a teacher there, and it's really, really interesting. And then the then um, this is I'm going into spoiler territory here. I apologize, but the you know her story ends with the U.S. government showing up and um, basically rescuing her, and you know giving the the Chinese people the cure. And then when she's in the airport about to come home, they reveal that they didn't give the village a cure. They gave them a placebo. Um, they just you know they you know they just gave them just nothing. And when they're sitting in the airport, the guy goes like. And you have to keep in mind, we've just spent the last two hours uh, exploring how debilitating and how quickly this virus moves in people. And they're sitting in an airport, and the guy goes, oh, yeah, I almost forgot. And he pulls out the vaccine and gives it to him. You're going to want to you know, inject that into you. And you're like, what? This is like the worst thing in the world, and you just like, oh, yeah, I almost forgot. Here's the cure. Make sure you... Give it to yourself and, in this and big sitting, public place. Sitting in an airport where they've just infected everyone in the airport. Yeah, if they're carrying it, they're all dead now. And you're just kind of like, what? And like the placebo idea isn't a bad one, but then there's no follow-up to that scene. We have no mm. idea what happens to the Chinese village. We have no idea if she lives or dies. It just it, it was just one of the most frustrating conclusions to a story I'd ever seen. And it's it's not a bad movie. I think a lot of people really enjoyed it. Um, it just it kind of frustrated and just kind of made me a little bit sad, and but also made me a little bit happy that I didn't spend uh, ten dollars to go see it. Both Kelly and I kind of went, "Oh, I wish that had been better." Um, hmm. Yeah, not again. It's not the worst movie in the world, um, but it's also certainly not the best, and that kind of disappointed us. Um, Two more things I want to touch on, and then I will turn the table back to you. Uh, one is Glee, the concert uh, movie, uh, which is... <laughs> yes. I, I must mock you briefly. Jeffrey, no, absolutely. No, I, 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 just... I, I deserve it. Um, right. Kelly and I are both fairly unabashed um, Glee fans. If there, such, if there is such a thing as a guilty pleasure, it is Glee. Um, and the, the DVD movie concert is only made for fans. It is not, if you're not a fan of the show, it is not going to sway you in any way, which I think is actually its strength because it was filmed in 3D and it was like, it's something that they knew was only going to play for like a week or two in the theaters. And so they make it actually a celebration of the fandom, which I thought was really interesting. Like they have the, the musical bits on stage, but in between those, they have like these little documentary sections where they've gone out and interviewed different fans of the show and they all talk about who their favorite character is or what Glee has helped them get through and so it actually becomes a celebration of you, the viewer, which I thought was really kind of cool and they uh, they had the cutest little Glee fan which I've, I've put a link to, if you go to our if you go to our webpage, uh, there's links to all of these things that we're talking about and there's a YouTube clip that had been passed around Facebook and other places um, of this little boy who's singing along to one of the Glee songs, and he is adorable, and they bring him into the movie, and he's there at the concert, and it is adorable. Um, and so, again, if you're not a fan of Glee, 
you're not going to enjoy this in any way. They don't add anything to it. There's no story. It's just what is weird is it's a concert and they're all these singers and actors are in character. So it's not like a concert. You're going to go see Leah Michelle sing. You're going there to see Rachel Berry sing, which is a little weird for me. But beyond that, it's great. Uh, lots of fun. Uh, the last thing is a television show that is no longer on the air, but I would highly recommend it because it's 13 episodes of some of the best scripted uh, television I've seen in a long time. It's called Terriers, um, which is a show that should still be on the air. I, I completely blame marketing, and if you're the person who is in charge of marketing uh, of Terriers, uh, shame on you and do better next time because this was a great show. Um, it's about a private investigator in San Diego. And um, it's just kind of this kind of it's kind of in the vein of a of a, of justified where it's just you know it's a very yellow and brown kind of gritty real people kind of a show but it's really funny and it's really just great characters are in this Donald Logue plays the main uh, kind of character and it reminds me a lot of um, Dean Tripp is actually the one who said this who was who we interviewed in a previous podcast. He goes, he basically plays Veronica Mars's older brother. If you're a fan of um, the Veronica Mars show, this is a show that will be right up your alley. It's 13 episodes. It has a nice beginning. It has a nice conclusion. It does have an ending that makes you realize that, you know, the, the writers were intending for there to be a second season. There's a little bit of a cliffhanger, but the whole show, like each episode has its own little mystery, their own little private investigation, but it also has a very large, 13 episode story arc that does have a nice conclusion in the end it's not a conclusion i was expecting but it's a good conclusion that makes sense and it's kind of a real world conclusion and not a very cinematic conclusion terriers um i highly recommend it's 13 fantastic episodes streaming now on netflix streaming now on netflix yeah again it's Oh, it's it's too bad. It's like the the commercials did it no justice. The poster art did it no justice. There are no dogs in this movie in this television <laughs> show. But like, if you look at the art for Terriers, you look at the muzzle of a dog for no good reason. And then in the very very distant background, you can see our main characters. And you're like, and when I saw the ads for this, I thought it was a show about people who bred Terriers. Um, but it's not. It's they use the word Terriers because uh, for those of you who are dog lovers. You know the terrier is a dog that you know chases was bred to chase down rats. It's a burrower. It's something who digs and finds what it's looking for and gets restless if it doesn't have something to do. And that perfectly describes our main characters. So it's a good title, but it was just marketed all wrong. And that's very disappointing because it's such a fantastic show. All right. Well, speaking of fantastic shows, um, I I've been kind of sick the last couple of weeks here. Um, and so I had a lot of downtime. So, and, and I had caught up on a lot of the TV that I'd been wanting to watch. So I sat down and started watching, uh, kind of a classic that, that everyone, when it was on, had told me that, oh man, you've got to watch this show. It's the best thing ever. And I really didn't at the time. Um, but that's The Shield, Hmm. um, FX's... FX, FF, however you want to say that. Uh, but there, uh, it was kind of a, a groundbreaking show. It, it definitely um, opened some some of the ways, I think, for a lot of um, a lot of the shows that we're seeing now on TV. Um, you know, I don't think we'd have our Mad Men's and uh, Justifieds and all of that kind of thing without the Shield. And um, 
Anyhow, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's it's really all of the things that people told me what it was. It's really gritty, uh, dark, violent, uh, you know, there's some really over-the-top stuff that happens on it, but at the same time, it's got, you know, really interesting but flawed characters, and, and um, you know, it's a police procedural, so it has that kind of cool thing, but then it has a lot of gang-related stuff, so I know I'm, you know, ten years late to this, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, just... I'm I'm really enjoying it. So yeah, no, that's um, a show I've wanted. The Shield and The Wire are the two greatest mm-hmm. shows apparently that I've never seen. Yeah. So um, anyhow, so I've been really enjoying that. Uh, and then uh, movie wise, um, I kind of got sucked into The Shield, so I haven't actually watched a whole ton of movies here. Um, but I did end up seeing Moneyball here in the last couple of weeks, and um, really, really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I have to say I'm a bit of a sucker for baseball movies to begin with. Um, I can't think of many baseball movies that I haven't enjoyed. Um, and um, and on top of that, this one is actually an event that I remember. So that's kind of cool. And then on top of that, it has some Aaron Sorkin writing in it, which is never a bad thing. Um, I just want I'm going to let you talk about this, but I have to add something here. Hollywood, I know you're listening to this podcast. We have a million listeners, and I know you're listening, so... From your lips to God's ears. If you have an Aaron Sorkin script, you tell me that. If Aaron Sorkin only... If Aaron Sorkin walks past somebody who's holding a script to your movie, advertise that. I will watch that movie. I Like I was telling Kelly... Um, I'm not a huge sports fan, but I don't know if there's ever been a bad sports movie. That being said, I might not rush out to see it. I might not even rush out to see a Brad Pitt film. But if you have an Aaron Sorkin scripted film, I will be there opening day. He just won the Academy Award last year for The Social Network. Why wasn't this advertised as an Aaron Sorkin scripted film? <laughs> he's like the one. He's like he's like the greatest American writer right now. And he's like the one film writer that people actually know by name. Why don't you advertise that? Yeah. Um, and yeah, I will definitely say his his influence. I mean, I know he wasn't the sole writer. Right. I don't think he was even the primary writer. I don't think script. I will. Yeah, I did some research um, and he wasn't. But yeah. But that said, it's obvious his influence is there. The um, I mean, it's a really, really well-made movie. It's, just everything about it is impeccable. Brad Pitt is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, just ev- everything is great. It's um, it's a really fascinating story. It's a really cool little piece of history. It's mm-hmm. it's kind of one of those reminders that um, yeah, that probably we as fans of movies should also take to heart a little bit. But it's uh, kind of that, you know, the people who are fans and the people who are in the news media um, who report on this stuff, which probably even includes Scott and I, but, uh, you know, you can believe us more than other people. Um, but, you know, you, you don't... They don't necessarily know all that's going on behind the scenes to get to get a, in this case, a baseball team, but, you know, a movie, a, a whatever, to the place that it is. Um, and that... You know, sometimes the blame for things can get placed at the wrong person's mm-hmm. feet, uh, you know, uh, or that maybe the right people never get the recognition that they really need by, you know, some of that is very clear from this movie. Um, yeah. And, and, I, it's, and it's a really good reminder, I, I think. I, of that. I liked also the, I'm sure the intended uh, commentary on 
we needing to always be willing to experiment and being willing to open and try new things like the idea of how technology could be used in a sport in the way that it's used exactly is like it's completely shunned by the by the you know in the same way it's like i i you see it happening with movies and music it's like everybody when the computers came in and things could start happening everybody went no 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 we can't mm-hmm. do that and it's clearly changed everything yeah exactly you know um yeah, it's it's definitely a bit of a cautionary tale in in like the nicest yeah, in, in, in way the possible sense yeah. possible, but yeah. Um but yeah, you know it's just, it's it's a great movie. Um I loved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't really say more about it than that. No, 5 out of 5 stars. My favorite scene was when they go and they there's a there's a baseball player they want to be first baseman and but he's a catcher. Mm-hmm. And to me that is like the most Sorkin-esque scene where he's just like He's like it's like it's you know tell him how easy it is to be first baseman. It's impossible. You know it's very hard. It's difficult. Yeah, but you know what? Nothing that's worth doing is easy. Mm-hmm. What about the fans? Yeah, well, I train the fans. It's like it has such great moments of just like fast banter that I love. It's a great film. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So Moneyball, mm-hmm. uh, definitely check it out. I know it's out on DVD and Blu-ray now, yep. and probably some other places mm-hmm. like. Your, your favorite Amazon instant video or something right. might have it. Who knows? Go That's find what kids it. are doing nowadays. <laughs> um, uh, real quick, before we get into the reason we've come together today, I just wanted to touch on, I just I just read this article that uh, Goodfellas is being adapted into an AMC television show. I've seen that, and we have recently uh, covered Goodfellas in a couple podcasts back from this one. So Just, um, a, just a fun bit of touch-up. I'm, I'm, you know, not touch-up, but follow-up. I'm curious mm-hmm. to see how they approach it. I hope that they, I hope that people don't try to be uh, the characters from the movie. Hero. Yeah, you know, it's like yeah. be, be the characters, but don't be the actors being the characters because yeah. that could get horrible very quickly. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and so, yeah, and no, I'm also I agree. curious is that if knowing since we know the beginning, middle, and end of that story. Is that going to be a show that they kind of roll into it going, this is a four-season show? Like, you know, like Breaking Bad, where they go, this has to have an end. He, mm-hmm. This happens to him, and that's where it has to go. I'm very curious to see how they, the process of that adaptation. Mm-hmm. Or if it's just going to be kind of in the spirit of Goodfellas, right. or, you know, kind of where they head with it. Yeah. Yeah, that'll be really interesting. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so, our movie this week, we are covering... Number 88 on AFI's Top 100 Films list. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would be Bringing Up Baby, the classic Catherine Hepburton and Cary Grant screwball comedy. From 1938, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, sure. Go with that. <laughs> 1930s. <laughs> I think it was 1938. No, like the, the, the current flavor of comedy is yeah. the, the Apatow mold of comedy which is to take something very serious and do something that's very that marries drama and comedy in a way that gives you these very relatable very real very grounded characters but then also injects a lot of banter inject a lot of slapstick and inject a lot of comedy um which is a which i i both respond to and really enjoy but also it's kind of it was neat and refreshing to go back and see something that's basically a live action cartoon um yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's definitely a uh, definitely from that kind of vein. It, you know, it could easily be 
like Bugs Bunny and Daffy Duck kind of yeah. doing the stuff in here. There, it, this movie has no straight characters. You know, like when you think of a movie like um, Robin Hood Men in Tights, kind of a lot of the comedy comes from the fact that when you watch it, you realize Robin is the only one who realizes this is all absurd. Everybody else in it is like a, just this hilarious character that's ridiculous and absurd. Where Robin will like actually look at the camera, like, "How am I supposed to attack the sheriff with this army?" <sighs> you know, in this movie, and maybe we should talk about the story a little bit. In this movie, those characters don't exist, or if they do, they're the antagonists who barely have any screen time. It's like mm-hmm. it's you know everybody in this is just an absurd cartoon character. Yeah. So, uh, kind of the story of of the movie. Um... Cary Grant's character, uh, David, which it's very easy to remember his name because Catherine Hepburn says it probably like 500 <laughs> times in this movie. Um, David True. <laughs> uh, is a uh, uh, archaeological professor mm-hmm. at a museum. Um, he's basically in charge of building the dinosaurs in the museum. Right. Um, and uh, he's engaged to be married to his fellow archaeological assistant um who is really boring and her idea of a honeymoon is to come back to work so they can finish building the dinosaur like this is how exciting of a person she is yeah because he's he's like oh we can go here and go there she's like oh no we should you're like oh your work is too important we must come back and finish it yeah um and his work apparently is just finding the place where this one single bone goes goes (laughs) in yeah um anyhow he is in process of trying to get a grant for the museum um, from this rich lady. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he has not actually met her yet or anything. He's going through her lawyers and that kind of thing. Right. And uh, while he's out playing golf with the lawyer, mm-hmm. um, his golf ball is stolen by Catherine Hepburn's character. Yeah. And then his car is stolen by Catherine Hepburn's character. And then... Yeah. And then... Wackiness ensues. Wackiness ensues because from there, somehow, he ends up getting sucked into this. Uh, he well, he gets taken up to Connecticut, basically from yeah, New York. Catherine Hepburn basically, basically kidnaps him, kidnaps him, um, and pulls him into her world, which has a leopard in it because she accidentally got delivered a leopard, and then yeah. every, basically from there, like the, the, these story elements that. It all then it plays out. It's like it's it's David trying to find this one bone that ends up getting stolen by a dog, and this is a very important bone. It's going to complete the skeleton. It's him trying to get the money. It's them trying to deal with this leopard that's on the loose. Right. Meanwhile, and, they've run into a psychiatrist who thinks they're all crazy because right. every time he's seen them, they've been doing crazy things, and and there's an aunt who who turns out to be the woman who he's trying to get the grant from who also thinks he's crazy but it also turns out to be Catherine Hepburn's aunt and it's it's just it just kind of expounds exponentially mm -hmm. into chaos is the best way I can say it it's like it's the barely controlled chaos and it's the kind of thing that really even talking about the story doesn't do it any justice because it's really a a two-hour Looney Tunes cartoon. It's like trying to describe, well, Bugs woke up one day and found out that they were building this thing, and he decided to destroy that thing. But in doing, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. it's just, each scene is there just to make you laugh. This whole thing is here just for comedy's sake. Mm -hmm. Um, That being said, I was impressed with the way the writer does, 
I won't say foreshadow, but like everything happens for a reason, and yeah, everything has a payoff later, and exactly. some of it builds on top of itself. Exactly. Like the, there are characters introduced in the first scene who come back later, and it's for a purpose that's within character. Even though this is completely absurd and wacky, and you've you know by the end of it, you're like, how did we get here? You can look back and kind of see the thread that started at the beginning and how it unraveled, and how it comes back together in the final scene. Exactly. So, um, yeah. So it's hard to def- to define the movie a little bit, but I mean, it is. It's just it's it is flat out. Uh, once it gets going, kind of once it gets past maybe like the first two minutes, three minutes. Mm-hmm. Basically, whenever Catherine Hepburn shows, up, she shows up on the up, screen, yeah. as soon as she it it goes into full blown, full steam ahead, and seriously does not let up until. Like the, the last credits. minute, or the, or the credits, basically at the end, you know, until yeah. the the end rolls on the screen. And Catherine Hepburn, I was really impressed with her because this was her first comedy, um, and she apparently, when she was hired, she was really, really unsure about being in a comedy, having only ever done drama before. And so they brought in all of these people. Even Cary Grant helped her, but then they brought in some silent com- uh, comic actors to try to help her with her timing because she was just so kind of petrified of you know doing comedy but she does a really good job with this and she almost steals the movie from the first scene that when as soon as she shows up she kind of just like in the same way she takes over david's life she takes over the movie she kind of goes we're going this direction with this movie now you're going to follow me on the golf course i'm going to steal your car and then you know on and on and on (laughs) (laughs) exactly um and which is interesting uh there it's you know she is really hilarious in this uh it's funny to see Cary grant because you think of him as kind of this leading man mm-hmm. um you know he is definitely the leading man in this but there are literally moments in this film where all he does is just look perplexed yeah and just kind of like the camera Catherine hepburn is off doing her crazy thing mm-hmm. and the camera just stays on him just going what is going on here? Trying to get a word in edge. Yeah, and, like, and words are failing him. He's just going, I, uh, 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 uh. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's really, it's really funny. Um, there's actually, there was a lot of scenes in this that kind of made me think of the early years of uh, <laughs> Lois Lennon and Clark Kent. I, I kind of feel like there was, a, <laughs> the, the way Cary Grant dresses and the way uh, uh, Catherine Hepburn dresses and the way they interact, especially in the early scenes, I, I am, almost convinced just from those from that that there was some early inspiration by the early writers of uh superman that uh wow. they, they took that it's just it, they're very lois and clark at times yeah, no I can, I can see that even though that. uh catherine hepburn's character is uh much more annoying and despicable <laughs> she has things <laughs> wrong with her that's that's something we you know the, the one thing that we should kind of touch on is like unlike um and we've kind of said it already, I guess. Unlike modern comedies, um, everybody in here is so absurd. Everybody here is so... Everybody has a screw loose to such a degree that you forgive how crazy it is. Because if these people were in our world behaving the way that they do, there would be something very, very wrong with Catherine Hepburn's character. Yeah. Like, like I mean, watching this movie... She is not okay. Yeah. <laughs> watching this movie... Um, Uh, Scott brought this up very early on as we were talking about this, but um, she is basically a stalker in this movie. Mm -hmm. Like, within her first few minutes of being on screen, um, she has somehow decided that Cary Grant's character 
is the love of her life, the only man she has ever loved, and she is going to marry him. And they've had, like, two interactions and people yelling at each other at that time. (laughs) Yeah. And every other choice she makes for the rest of the movie is to basically trap him into spending more time with her. Right. And to pull him into her web of craziness. Pull him in so that is her, he can't escape. It's like, yeah. she's not trying to woo him, she's trying to trap him. Yeah. It's, literally, she's a stalker. Um, yeah, stalker except, and, literally, and a and emotional blackmailer and a kidnapper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and if this was not the comedy that it is, it would be a very dark, twisted movie. Yeah. Um, but because... And everyone versus the sexes it'd become no. a very different movie as well <laughs> yeah but because of the way it is it's actually really hilarious yeah. um yeah you know uh, but this is definitely the sort of movie um where miscommunication is where every single piece of hilarity ensues from yeah um and it, the the dialogue in here is just witty, mm-hmm. but it's all double talk and confusing, you know, dialogue where where words get flipped around on each right. other. It's funny because and, of what they're saying, but it's also funny because we, the audience, know what they mean, and we also recognize that the person they're talking to thinks they're saying something different. Yes, and um, you know, this is this is kind of its biggest difference between this movie. And like a modern romantic comedy, I mm-hmm. think, is that um, in, a, in a romantic comedy today, um, for me, it gets, and, and a lot of other movies, but it's it's probably the worst in romantic comedies. It's the most obvious. Yeah. They suffer at the point when conflict arises. Because, you know, obviously that's how a film is structured, is you have to have conflict to be resolved so that the characters can grow. And so, I mean, that's kind of how they're written. Um, but in... In romantic comedies, the conflict always comes from some kind of misunderstanding. Um, you know, it can be as simple as, like, who was that girl? It's not what you think it was. You know, it's not what it looks like. Well, it was. what was it? I can't tell yeah. you. Yeah, you, you know, how many times me. have you seen that in a movie? Um, and every single time, all it would take is the couple in, in the movie to sit down for not even two minutes, like... 45 seconds to say that was what happened sister. was she needed money <laughs> yeah that was my sister or you know what i fell over and you walked in right after i had fallen over or you know whatever right, it is right you know um and it's horribly frustrating because you know movies could be completely just the happy parts without this miscommunication right. in, in in modern romantic movies and so it's really really frustrating in this movie, the entire movie is one giant misunderstanding. No, this is this is your classic comedy of errors. Yeah. It's like it is just misunderstanding on top of misunderstanding on mm-hmm. top of misunderstanding. It is almost making fun of, of this concept. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like and, <laughs> and because of that, it's it's it could be the most frustrating thing in the world if you're someone who just can't get over that. But if you can get past that, it's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. So, so your mileage is going to vary based on how much you can deal <laughs> with people not being able to talk to each other. Right. Right. Or in this case, everybody talks all the time and no one hears anything. I, I have a friend yeah. who says like communication is both the sending and receiving of information. You have not commuted anything until it has actually been received. Right. And um, 
there is no reception in no, this movie. No. There's l- way, way too much sending. Yeah. And no reception. Yeah. A uh, couple interesting little notes about this uh, movie is that it was kind of deemed a failure when it first was released. Um, yeah, it, it when it was released, I, I mean, it made its budget back and then it made about $13,000 exactly. on top of its budget. And people, people kind of have rewritten history a little bit and they kind of go, oh, it was a, this huge flop. It wasn't, it just wasn't the success they wanted it to be. Right. Um, it, um, it's been history that has made yeah. it a, the classic movie that it is. Because yeah. even at, at the time when it came out, like, uh, several people wrote about how good Catherine Hepburn was in it and stuff. I mean, like, it it received really mild acclaim at the time, right. but it didn't do the box office anybody wanted it to do. Right, And but um, like, even like Catherine Hepburn was kind of released of her contract when this yeah. movie came out because the the studio was like, she's box office poison. Nobody wants mm-hmm. to see her, and we don't need to do more movies with you. And so like, oh, there was a lot of negative fallout at the time when this movie came out, um, which is interesting because, like, 10 years later, like in 1940 and 1941, they re-released it and it made an additional $150,000 at that time. So, it, I mean, it seems to me, by any measurement, it was a success. People yeah. really have liked it. And it might it might have been one of those first uh, instances where um, people went into it expecting maybe something different. And so maybe in 1938, whenever it was released, um, people went, oh, Catherine Hepburn. This, and then they they got something so completely different that maybe people just didn't warm to it as quickly as they wanted it to. It's also, the, to me, the first instance, or the earliest instance I've ever seen of that very frustrating thing where um, a movie makes all of its mu- budget back, it makes money, and it's still called a failure. Mm-hmm. That frustrates me so much when I hear, oh, that movie was a complete abject failure. I'm like, it made over $30 million mm-hmm. past its budget. How is that a failure in anybody's world? I don't understand. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting thing because I, I think something also fascinating with this is this whole concept of re-releasing the film. Yeah, because um, if this movie was not a huge success, uh, looking in today's world mm-hmm. of things, um, you know, when we have television shows, they get canceled after two episodes mm-hmm. because they haven't found an audience yet. Right. Um, here you are in 1940, 1941, with a movie that at the time was at best a mild success, mm. getting a full re-release and doing amazingly well. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is something that could not happen today. I don't think. Like, I mean, Disney yeah, okay. disagrees. So does Star Wars. Yeah, but Disney is re-releasing Beauty and the Beast, which can hardly be called a yeah. Mild success. They re-release and they re-release. Star Wars is getting re-released. Yes. No, I'm just. But and no, I you you are right about that. The, the re-release could happen, but not for this movie. You know, they're not going like, to re-release Superman Returns. Exactly. Um, and I think that's just a really fascinating thing, right there. And and I wonder, I would be very interested to see what movies have been failures that might now have the star power in them because the stars have gone on to do something that actually could have a revival to them. Um, I don't know. You know I, that, I, that, I think, that is interesting. And yeah, um, I, think, I think we've seen maybe a little bit more of that because of DVDs and that kind of yes. thing. I think, mm-hmm. I think people can go back and find an actor's back catalog. I think more that's now. the new re-release because you talk, yeah. there's movies that they talk about that 
were only success due to DVD, but due to DVD, they were a phenomenal success. You know, Shawshank Redemption or something yeah. like that, I think is maybe the, the classic mm-hmm. example. I mean, Movies that have found their audience in the home video market, um, mm-hmm. which is really, really interesting. Because, yeah, we don't see uh, major re-releases a whole lot. You do see minor re-releases around Academy Award time where they go, oh, hey, we should make sure people get to see The Descendants now that everybody's mm-hmm. talking about The Descendants. Um, yeah. And so you'll see a slight push for some of that. But you don't really see major re-releases. Um, I think yeah. like Gone with the Wind had a very successful re-release um, mm-hmm. life. And I wouldn't be surprised at some point if a movie like that gets re-released. Sure. And, I, you know, and I guarantee that someplace right now, uh, you know, in a theater or, or a tin here in mm-hmm. North America, that that is still playing somewhere. Right. Like, you could probably, in New York, go find Gone with the Wind yeah. playing. Well, yeah, right and th- yeah, well, you, know. you have classic movie theaters. Mm-hmm. Like, I know in Nashville that we released that we yeah. going to show Casablanca this weekend because they can. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it, it is interesting. And I, I really I like that idea. I like the idea mm-hmm. of going, I saw this movie when I was a kid. I'm going to take you to see it now. Um, and I don't know if there's, a, you know, I don't know what kind of money is in it for studios, but it seems like now that everything is digital, you could do one night engagements. You could say, mm-hmm. hey, you know, we're going to uh, we're going to download it to the, to the satellite, to whatever, to the theaters. And for this weekend, you guys can go watch the uh, Back to the Future trilogy. You guys can go watch E.T. or some other sci-fi movie I loved as a kid. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. why, why not? Why not do stuff like that? It, it, so, it seems at this point, if you own the rights to a movie, you could distribute it for nothing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I don't know. It's just an interesting, it's an interesting thing. The the way that the business has shifted, at least, and mm-hmm. um, at, you know, at the same time, we're we're really lucky to be able to get movies like this on DVD. Now. Absolutely. Um, you know, this is maybe, you know, we're talking about it now <laughs> you know 70 80 years later yeah it's almost um, been 100 years and <laughs> yeah and we're st- still able to watch it without having to go seek out double a click theater. on netflix and i had it in two days you know it's yeah. madness so anyhow we live in the future <laughs> it is the future now uh, <laughs> other thing that i thought was really kind of interesting about this movie that i didn't realize but when it happened in the movie kelly and i both went did he just say what i think he said um there's a scene where of, of course, Cary Grant's clothes have been stolen. Um, uh, by Catherine Hepburn. By Catherine Hepburn. He's in the shower, so Catherine Because Hepburn. she's a stalker. And she, but she's trying to do a nice thing, and so she sends her his clothes into town so they can be washed and pressed. I don't know why they can't do that there, but they're doing it in town. She, she could do it there. The lady says she could do it there. She sends it to town because she wants him to stay there longer. She's sucking him into the trap. So when Cary Grant realizes this... He don't put, do it! It's a trap! <laughs> it's a trap! <laughs> um, when Cary Grant realizes he has no clothes, he does what any man would do, which is grab the nearest thing and puts it on, which happens to be a very silky, very feminine, flowy nightgown. Night so, you know, it's very, it's obviously a woman's nightgown. Um, and then the, someone knocks on the front door, he answers it, and they have this very interesting conversation where she's like, who are you? Why are you here? Why are you dressed that way? And he's trying to answer a question, and finally he just, she goes... Uh, why are you wearing that? And he goes, because I went gay all of a sudden. And we, Kelly and I went, he went gay? He's wearing women's clothing and he's gay? What? And I did a little bit of research and on IMDb it kind of says, um, and I looked around other other places on the internet, that this is basically believed to be the first time in American, in American cinema that's not pornography uh, where the word gay was used in the modern sense. 
up to this point, you know, um, a gay individual would be called a homosexual in a movie or just in general in society, they were called homosexuals. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is the first time where gay was, we kind of think this is the first time gay was used in that sense. And, um, it was not in the script. It was an ad lib by Cary Grant. And apparently, um, it's kind of said, I don't know the etymology of the word really well, or the real history of, of the word. Um, but it is kind of believed to be gay does seem to be a word that was already being used, but it was used in the subculture. It was not something being used by everyday people. It wasn't actually a word used in this sense until the 1960s. And so um, I guess it's basically hypothesized that Cary Grant knew this due to friends and whatever. But um, it was used. It was hilarious. Everybody thought it was really funny. And uh, 1938, the first use of the word gay in a movie to mean gay. <laughs> and not, well, and not, you know, not happy, joyful, whatever. Um, just interesting. A, a moment. It's a really funny moment, um, but it's and it's just not a moment you expect to see in an eighty-year-old movie. Yeah. Um, something else here that we can kind of do. Uh, a couple of weeks back, we looked at um, uh, Swing Time, Scott, yes. which is also a bit of a screwball comedy. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, like especially thinking about like that first scene where they're stopping him from getting to the wedding. Right. Um, you know, it has, men start the, start off old movies about to get married. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of similarities, at least initially, about these two movies. Yeah, um, and we kind of walked away from Swing Time not being super impressed with mm. it. Um, you know, it was kind of okay. Um, this one goes. I don't know if this is a great term or not, but it's way screwballier <laughs> than <laughs> screw your baller. Swing t- <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, than swing time was. Yeah. Um, I mean, it just goes way out there, up to eleven. It. Yes, and um, I don't know. What do you think of it? Kind of in that context, kind of comparing it and contrasting. I'm totally, I'm totally springing this on him it's right a good now. Question. He, and he I would, talked about uh, this. My knee-jerk reaction is that I enjoyed this more than I enjoyed swing time. Yeah, um, I, th- I would agree with I that. I think it's, as a comedy, I think it's more successful. Um, mm-hmm. Swing Time, I know, I guess would be a comedy, mm-hmm. um, ultimately, but I feel like this just had more laughs in it. And when, you, when you're just approaching a movie just as a comedy, all I want is to sit back and laugh at the absurdity, at the great banter, at the the puns and the dialogue, at the characters, at the situations. Mm-hmm. Um and this, to me, had more laughs per minute, <laughs> if you want to even break it down mu- to a mathematical point. Even the musical numbers were funnier in this one. Yes. <laughs> but, and that's the thing. Swing Time had great music in it, and especially yeah. a couple of those songs were just phenomenal. And that this, those aren't in this movie. No. But this has just you know some really classic sequences that will remind you of I Love Lucy and um, other... You know, like There's a scene early in the film where he accidentally... She accidentally tears his coat... And then in return, he accidentally tears her dress. And it's just this great moment where she doesn't realize her dress is torn, but you can see her pantaloons at the back. And he's trying to hide it from the entire restaurant. And it's just this great moment that doesn't require any dialogue. And it doesn't, the dialogue in it isn't funny, but it's just, you're just sitting there just chuckling and laughing at this whole thing because it's played so well. And I would yeah. say the comedy is played much stronger in this than in Swing Time. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree. I think I think the comedy just works significantly better um, yeah. in this film. 
and I, I would say Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, their strengths were in their dancing and in their singing, not necessarily in their acting, not necessarily in their comedy, where these two are basically, well, even though Catherine Hepburn approached this in a way that she wasn't necessarily comfortable with the comedy right away, she was enough of a performer that she could sell it. And Cary Grant is a phenomenal comedian. He's great. He'd be a great comedian today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think they're playing more to their strengths than Fred and Ginger were. Yeah. Um, all right. So overall, uh, uh, you know, I think I'm going to come down on this. Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, do you want? You know, there's. Do you want to touch on the uh, the technology of the time? And oh yeah, yeah, that's totally in our notes, isn't it? <laughs> um, <laughs> there's some really impressive stuff that goes on in this movie that is even more impressive considering the fact that it came out in 1930, the 1930s. Yeah, um, it it definitely. Uh, I mean, one of the major plot points. I assume we can call it a plot point for this movie is that there is um a uh, uh big cat that they have i mean it's 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 a leopard a leopard yes um and there end up being two of them one of which is <laughs> if if one wasn't enough bring on a second yeah one that's happens- relatively tame and one yeah, that's a one wild that's leopard that escaped from the zoo yeah, well, escape from the circus right. and maul a man. Right. Apparently, they're sending it to the gas chamber, right? Because um, that's that's not a happy note in there. Um, wow, yeah, but um, yeah, it's uh, obviously the studios were not going to risk two major stars with uh, you know big ferocious cats who could kill them right. uh, very easily. Um, or maybe worse, not kill them, but just kind of disfigure them, because that would kind of be the end of their career. Um, so there is... I, I don't know that there's many moments in this movie where they are physically together on screen. The only ones that really happen are the ones where it's just Catherine Hepburn and the leopard, where you see her petting him and stuff. Yeah. Apparently Catherine Hepburn really took to the cat on set, and they got along really well. That being said, yeah. it's not very often. Yeah. Um, and so everything on here is really, really early usage of either split screen technology, where like um, half the screen is the actors from one take, and the other half is the leopard in another take, and they've kind of spliced them seamlessly between it. Right. Um, or matte shots, which is basically um, they shot a scene with the actors in it, and then they shot it with the leopard, and then they kind of do a uh, overlay. You know, they might have shot the leopard against right. black or something, and they can just overlay them together, and it looks like everything's in one scene. I mean, right. this is basically what we do today with computers, but yeah. obviously then they didn't have Doing it. It optically. was all, yeah, they they would have to do it with actual cats and mm-hmm. people and cameras and all of that kind right. of thing. Um, and what's crazy about this is how well it works. Right, it is because it's it's not just. There's scenes where they actually have a, a traveling split screen where they've kind of locked off where the cat is and they move, basically they move the split screen so that the cat always looks like it's in the same scene with these other people who are on both sides of the cat or the cat's running away from the screen so they kind of have to make it look like the cat continued to chase them. And it works really well. There's... um I knew this was going to be something in the movie yeah. going into it as I started watching it. And even knowing it, 
like I didn't really process it until I kind of reminded myself of it. What was going kind on? Kind of halfway right. through the movie, and I went, "Oh yeah, the cat's not actually there." Yeah. And what's amazing, like uh, there's so much stuff now with you know blue screens and and mm-hmm. stuff and computers, um, and we still see all of these instances where like people's eyes don't line up right. or you know where there's kind of little errors and stuff little green glowing around yeah. people and what what's amazing is how well this works how well the actors were playing to something that wasn't there um yeah. you know i can't think of anywhere where they didn't have the right eye lines or right. the right i mean it was amazing it's really kind of right at the end there's a part where they go into a police yes. station and that's really where the only it, time it kind of falls apart yeah there's there's some stuff where it's obvious that the leash that Catherine Hepburn is holding isn't the same leash that's on the leopard. They, they don't quite meet on the screen. Yeah. Um, and then there's like a, a one shot where it's it's one of those traveling mat things where um, you know Cary Grant didn't move quite far enough or something, or they they didn't yeah. have it planned quite right, and so part of his hand goes away. It disappears, <laughs> you know, in the scene. And I mean, it's there's a couple of minor things like that, but otherwise. It's really seamless. You don't yeah. even think about it. It's it's pretty amazing. It, yeah, I, I mean, it's not the split screen is. Not, I can't tell you the, the history of the split screen, but I know I've often kind of in the back of my head often thought of the Parent Trap being the first mm-hmm. real champion of split it's, screen technology. Yeah, it's because like when I was a kid, I know I saw this movie when I was a kid, and I know I never thought right about oh the leopard that wasn't leopard actually isn't on the screen <laughs> whereas i know when i saw the parent trap the the original disney one right. from the 70s you, you knew um, there weren't two Haley mills right and so you know it was a complete but i never connected those as a kid and then going back to rewatch this it's like this is amazing it's it's fantastic technology yeah. um at work yeah and it's, uh, it's really again really impressive especially considering the day and age that it was coming out. I don't know if it was the, if they were the first. I'm actually a little curious, and now I might have to do a little bit of research um, because it is. Yeah, it's it's really. I, I did a little bit of reading about how they filmed some of the other scenes, and there were scenes where uh, the cat is on set, and they have to have they had the camera crew in a cage with the camera mm-hmm. poking out between the bars so that they could film it with in confidence that they weren't going to be attacked. Yeah, um, um, and and I mean, just what's amazing is we truly are in movies still doing this exact mm-hmm. same thing we have slightly different technology now to make it happen You're doing it slightly, but this yeah. is but this is uh, i mean this effect is basically what we are still doing today yep. um you know 80 years later yep so it's that's kind of amazing mm-hmm. we just don't have to put our camera crews in cages <laughs> quite as much not now. as often so, so after that final thoughts lauren Oh, well, yes, back to the verdict. Uh, I liked it. I, I enjoyed the movie. I thought it was a lot of fun. It's, um, I think it's exactly the sort of movie that would drive my wife crazy. <laughs> um, because I, I don't think she would be able to deal with the amount of miscommunication in it. I think it would just drive her up the wall. Um, that said, I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. And so I think your enjoyment is going to be kind of based on how much you can deal with that. Yeah. Um, yeah um, but yeah, it, it, it's, a, it's a hilarious movie. Kelly and I both really enjoyed it. Kelly's a big fan of Catherine Hepburn as one of the early kind of uh, feminists. Um, yeah. And she's a, she's a, fan, a phenomenal actress. And she, so she went into it excited and we both 
we were very pleasantly surprised at how funny and absurd it was. Uh, we're both big fans of like things like I Love Lucy. This is very mm-hmm. in the, that vein of miscommunication and wackiness of like how much can we stack this on top of each other before it all falls down. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I would highly recommend it. It's a it's a really good solid comedy. Yeah, absolutely. No, nothing um, offend, you know, nothing offensive or nothing in it that could really turn anybody away. Other than you might not take to the style. Yeah, and I think that's going to be the biggest thing. Is it's a stylistic, you know, lots of slapstick, lots mm. of um, really sharp, witty, quick dialogue. Um, yeah, and so if that sounds fun to you, uh, go watch it. It's great, indeed. And that wraps us. That's wrap. That wraps up this show. <laughs> find us on Facebook um, at Movies You Should Love. Um, find us at on the web at moviesyoushouldlove.com. Follow us on Twitter at Movies You Should. I'm Scott Fogg. You can follow me at Scottish Fogg on Twitter. I will fill your Twitter feed very quickly. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Whether I'm reposting people or I'm live tweeting something, I have. I try to have a lot of fun on Twitter because it's a place where I can just send out random sentences yeah and um just as a side note one thing that we're uh looking at doing is, is starting doing some uh kind of mini i think we're going to call them mini shows yes. or mini casts or something we haven't quite decided yet but we're gonna call requests them. yeah but that's what we're after um if there is kind of i mean i mean don't don't make us suffer here too much <laughs> is is kind of our biggest friends, thing right yeah but um you know if there's a movie that that you want us to explain to you or to get into maybe you are just really interested in the history of it and yep. think our listeners should be interested in it um if there's something that's just really impacted you or if it's just so weird you have no idea how to understand it um or just a movie you know, that you love talking about and you would like to bring the conversation to this podcast and to and to our websites yeah, uh, you know, let us know. Let us know on Facebook, uh, Twitter, our website, moviesyoushouldlove.com, anywhere. Um, and we're going to start in on these here in the next, you know, uh, by the time you hear this, we probably will have some posted. So, yeah, um, yeah drop us a line and let us know. Indeed. And tune in next week when we discuss number 87 on AFI's Top 100 Films, one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, Mine as well. 12 Angry Men. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic movie. Is my uh, quick spoiler for you, but um, <laughs> well, well worth your time to join us next time. Absolutely. So we'll see you then. Ta. You've been listening to the Movies You Should Love podcast. Join in the conversation at moviesyoushouldlove.com. dot